Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Astrosal. I'm Corey Allen. You are you, and it's great to be here with you in this moment of time. Hope things are going right and well in your life today. Hope that you're feeling good and all of that type of thing. I have got a great podcast for you today. My guest is Dr. Nicole LaPera. Nicole is a clinical psychologist and author and a social media sensation. Her first book, How to Do the Work, was a giant success, creating a framework of self-therapy for people that resonated throughout the culture in a huge, huge way. She's got a new book out called How to Meet Yourself, which is the workbook of self-discovery, a book that really helps you get in there, ask yourself questions, understand yourself more deeply, and give you the support to transform your inner world. I had a great time talking with Nicole. We get into all sorts of juicy mind nuggets, and I know you're going to dig it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Wouldn't that be sweet if life came with a user manual, or even if we were taught about mental health in school, but most of us weren't taught anything about mental health in school, by our families, or anything. But fortunately, BetterHelp is here and can help us take charge of our mental health with online therapy. Their therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. I have talked to a therapist before, and I have to say it's an incredibly helpful way to get an outside perspective on your life and continue on your growth path. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It could not be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com astral. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash astral. All right, the time is now. Let's go do it. Let's go talk to the brilliant and wise, Dr. Nicole LaBera. Congrats on the new book. It looks, first off, it's really beautifully designed. What, how did you come up with the idea to have those kind of watercolor-looking drawings in there? What was the deci- decision behind the aesthetic of that? Yeah, thank you. I, I'm really, really happy with how it came out, and I definitely can't take credit for the design in its entirety. Um, one thing we did know going in, um, in terms of the cover, I really liked the look of the sunburst of the How to Do the Work, the mm. original book. Um, so mm. I really liked the idea um, of the cover of this now workbook, How to Meet Yourself, to really illustrate you know, the darkness <laughs> of peeling back the layers and that kind of sunburst coming through and a very similar aesthetic look with the kind of watercolor swatches that How to Do the Work has. And then ultimately just translating that feel in the pages and the design team at Harper Wave, um, who's helping me, supporting me publishing the book, did a really, really incredible job um, giving us some sample designs and really hit the mark. So I am just giving it the visual and the color and the depth um, of the workbook was important uh, for me going into it. I just think they knocked it out of the park. So glad to hear you agree. <laughs> yeah, that's a great thing too, because, you know, it can be dicey, like working with a with 
someone else whenever you're talking about yes. visual art because obviously it's so subjective that you can say i want this you know bright sun feeling peeling back the layers of darkness and then you what you see is <laughs> so can be so far away so it's a it's beautiful to hear that you yes. locked in and, yes. and got it going yeah it's quite quite subjective i do agree and i have to say um, one of my partners and who helped to create the book jenna um, really has an eye and a dialogue around being able to direct um because i'm definitely it's not my strong suit i can say like yeah that look or this look so having the support i guess really is just what it comes down to and i'm so grateful amazing so did, did you have the idea for this to kind of just grow out of your previous book and you wanted to make something more like active and and purposefully engaging or how did it come about that was a big piece of it um and thinking about how to i think do two things more or less um, working as I once did kind of individually and thinking about, you know, a healing journey and taking someone or giving someone the tools to kind of, while we all know it's not linear, um, but to think of a roadmap of action and really knowing that people were looking and wanting that kind of comprehensive framework of a start to finish book I can kind of like live in and work through. Um, and then, of course, as I was writing the narrative of how to do the work, and while I did include a lot of practical application and even every chapter in that book ends with, you know, whether it's an exercise component or a journaling component, and because I do think translating these concepts into action applies, whether it's a narrative book or a workbook. Um, but after having written how to do the work, I really did see then the opening of really talking about the process of peeling back the layers of conditioning to meet that elusive space that we are all are yearning to find that um, authentic self. And I thought, what better than to have the moment of this being that comprehensive roadmap through that journey? Yeah, that's super smart because it's uh, all real wisdom comes from whenever stored knowledge, just things that you remember or that you've read intersect with chance moments in life. We have to apply that information and then wisdom and insight arises from that. So it's cool that you had the first book, which was basically like, here's all the information. And then the next one is like, all right, now here's how you can take this into your experience and then really build it up and have it, you know, bear its fruit through living with it as opposed to just reading about it. I am actually, Corey, when you said that, I'm having a full body chills moment. Um, even just hearing you describe wisdom in that way, I'm, I'm such a believer now um, in that model of passing down, right, that, that tradition, these ideas and in our translation and giving us each as individuals the opportunity to, like you're beautifully saying, kind of integrate, think about these concepts, live with them, find the space, translate them into action of, you know, our story and what it looked like um, for us and how that then journey um, can impact other people. And while I'm, why I'm saying that this is kind of like a shift for me um, coming from especially a really academic career path, historically coming and getting my PhD, um, I don't think that necessarily, at least that wasn't the message that I was taught in terms of wisdom and the value <laughs> of having individual channels of, you know, sharing. I mean, one of the biggest things I was taught in my program was actually not to be a human that has a story that definitely doesn't bring it in um, to a treatment room to relate to another human. So again, it, it took some and very appropriate peeling back of my own conditioning in a lot of ways to really accept that this is how we learn and we learn from each other's stories and giving myself then um, the opportunity 
and the okay to begin to speak. And of course it hasn't always, you know, it's not an easy journey in doing that. Um, but hearing you say that is very affirming. Oh, good. Yeah. And also, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the funny thing is it's not about the story. Like the story isn't the problem because that's really inescapable. We we cannot not narrativize our own mm -hmm. experience on ourselves. The issue is that you just have to understand that you have a story. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you create the spaciousness between being able to observe and be aware of your own mental narrative versus being consumed and being the actor inside of it, then you're all good. And then you can use that story that you're aware of to then do what you said, which is relate deeply to other people who are going through a similar thing. Yes. Well, and I, I love, even though you're thinking about that, and I think where the journey begins um, in the How to Meet Yourself workbook is acknowledging that reality that so many of us are blind to our story or the separation even between the thoughts in our mind and all of these narratives that our brain is making for us, often again, informed by our earliest experiences, coloring our current moment, but that doesn't make us who we are and as someone who is very living in that blind autopilot state, um, just kind of reacting through life, playing out this conditioning that I learned at a really young age, um, all in service, of course, of keeping myself in that safe, familiar habit pattern, um, a lot of us do believe that that's just who we are. It's our personality. You know, maybe we wrap in there, well, genetically, I'm, you know, constrained then or limited with what I can say or do or feel or the impact I can have. And really beginning to question that first, which is where I, it began with me. Um, but like you're saying, kind of pulling back and creating that space to see that while we might be blind to it, it isn't who we are. And we can begin to create separation and peeling back of those layers. Yeah, I really love to see that you began the, the workbook with just addressing what conditioning is to start with, because, you know, like yourself, that was... I think one of the more powerful insights I had from a very young age as well was just recognizing, and it was environmentally, you know, I was, I recognized it without the language of it, but just noticing that like, hold on a second, like I'm observing certain things happen. I'm being told that other things are happening in conflict with what I'm actually seeing. I think we might all be looking through different instruments at the <laughs> same, you know, objective landscape and getting different readings here. Hold on a second. And I just began recognizing. And then of course, eventually it hit me that like, okay, everyone is doing that, which that means that I'm doing that, which means that I need mm -hmm. to look inward to see, you know, how I'm doing that and what that means. And it's such an incredibly powerful thing to, in some ways you're beginning to recognize that your perception is subjective, right? And then that subjective you know, perception contains the story and you can start working forward from there. Uh, but I'm curious, it seems simple and clear to you or I, someone who's been thinking about conditioning for a long time, um, but it is a really confusing idea, I think, for a lot of people, a hard thing for them to wrap their minds around. What is a way that you would describe conditioning that would be easy for people to understand? I really, really appreciate this question. And um, I appreciate you sharing your lived experience of that subjectivity because that's absolutely um, what it is. And you know, interestingly enough, I think that oftentimes one of two other alternates happen, and I definitely lived one of these experiences, is either we become the person who sees that inherent difference like you were describing yourself to be, um, or we become someone like who I have once been. Um, here's difference in my perception and maybe here's difference reflected in someone else's. And I historically took the kind of, uh, I took the route 
of deferring, of assuming that they must know or have some information that's better or more accurate than me. Um, so some of us, that becomes our aut autopilot is to invalidate our reality and service of someone else. And then I'm really simplifying, of course, but then others do the opposite of that. Hear others <laughs> differing perceptions and have no room for it. Um, we become so cemented in our perception that we can't even hear a difference in perspective or opinion. And so going back to answer your question, um, conditioning really is just a repetition. And again, I like to really simplify these co concepts for understanding. And it's a repetition of the thoughts in my mind that, you know, impact then the ways my body feels and functions physiologically, the way the state of my nervous system. Um, and then all of that, you know, in very much kind of like a cycle impacts what I do, how I attempt to regulate uh, my body to go back into feeling safe and secure in myself. And conditioning then becomes the more repeated those neural networks become, you know, beginning firing in our actual brain apparatus. I'm sure many listeners have heard Hebb's law, neurons that fire together, wire together. So just thinking of it in that way, the more I fire these neural networks of thoughts, feelings, all impacting my physiology and then reactive behaviors, before I know it, that becomes hardwired conditioning or the neural networks now that will become the autopilot. So when I don't think about, you know, consciously what I'm going to do first thing in the morning, and that's what you'll meet and in the foundation of the workbook is all of the, even just the physical habits, the way I care for my body that I've repeated for so long that that's just what I do. It's how I wake up. It's how I take my meals. It's, you know, how I tend to sleep or rest, or I don't tend to sleep or rest in my life. And, you know, while this might sound like minutia for a lot of us, all of that is conditioned into us. It's the, it's the, you know, um, emblematic example of driving the car and not having to think about the directions. Well, when we really pay attention or begin to pay attention, so much of our life is lived in that very conditioned way where we're not necessarily having to pay attention. And this extends even beyond the way we care for our physical body. This extends even more problematically into typically the way we tend to our emotions or can't tend to or regulate our emotions and even our general way of being in the world. The more repeated the habits become, the more, again, they become hardwired into our conditioning. Yeah. And it's amazing, like what we're really up against. Whenever you zoom out a few clicks and consider just the layers and layers and amount of conditioning that we're all dealing with, because we have, of course, our cultural conditioning, you know, everything that's in the ecosystem of our lives is, is pushing up against us all the time, telling us that you, you know, have to do X, Y, and Z to be successful to feel good to be you know a, a complete person and all these things and typically of course like marketing and capitalism has a, a huge influence on that i think because we're all marketed to from the time we're babies and they're telling us like hey if you don't have this thing then you're missing something and so it kind of like predicates our lives upon being incomplete in some way and so that's like a just one of many factors um and then of course guy you know dealing with everything that your family is laying on you all of their inherited mm -hmm. baggage you know and then things like religion <laughs> and all you know all this other stuff it's just amazing um and that's before we even get to body habits like you're talking <laughs> about just all of the stuff that we're we're working against is um it's really, really profound once you start to recognize it and peel it back and just become free from that because so much of that turns into self-limiting thoughts, right? So everyone's told like, you you can do this, you have to be this way, you have to do this way. 
And so people get that misunderstanding where intuitively they feel that's true, even though it's incorrect, but they intuitively feel that way only because it was told to them before they were self-aware enough to distinguish you know, the intellectual ideas in their mind. So it's been like deeply wired, right? Um, but once you can start you know, working through that stuff, you wake up and realize, oh, wow, I'm actually a free agent. I can do and be whatever I want. And to complicate it and maybe blow listeners' minds even further, everything that you're describing, the impact of this conditioning, in my opinion, and in research, um, as it's been documented, extends beyond even the generations that we're born into. And what I mean when I say that is future, our, you know, grandmoms, grand, grand, great, grand, grandparents, um, all of our intergenerational lineages are, we now know, um, based on the science of epigenetics, not only in our thoughts, um, because that's what beliefs are. They begin as practice thoughts that are then grounded by confirmation, because that's another thing our brain likes to do in our lived experience. Um, not only does it are con is conditioning essentially, and the beliefs passed down in thought directly and indirectly, it's also passed down epigenetically in our cells. And we know this especially predominantly um, through the many generations who you know, suffered, you know, um, abuse and, and slave. And there's an incredible book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome that documents, again, the epigenetic changes that can be seen in cellular. So I'm describing that again to say like, wow, when we really think about impact and the generations of even just humanity, our families, our, our human, you know, lineage coming down, um, there is so much conditioning that then we are literally um, born into. And it becomes, like you're saying, just such a part of who we are. And I'm bringing up this kind of intergenerational patterning because as someone, again, living the experience, it does become really confusing when you see such a similarity in the generations that came before you. Um, you see, you know, when we talk about limiting beliefs, you see kind of what their lives, how they live their lives, um, what successes or failures they were able to achieve. You were able to see, you know, kind of physically what their health or wellness looked like or didn't. Um, same thing emotionally. And the reality of it is because we're so impacted by our environments, we're, we of course are impacted by those genetics that can also be affected by the environments of the generations that precede it. Um, and then our environment becomes so impactful. And before we know it, we do see what does feel like family patterns, family limitations. For me, there was a lot of health-related chronic health issues um, in my home. And for a very long time, I had such a deep-rooted limiting belief in my body's ability to be fully healthy. Um, even though I would read books, I've always been fascinated by the mind and the power of people to come from, you know, life-threatening terminal diagnoses and create health and wellness in their life. And I would read these incredible stories of, you know, holistically creating wellness and healing where it wasn't believed to be possible. And I would say, wow, that's so incredible for you. I <laughs> am the limitation. I am the reason, right? I am the exception to this model. And what I'm describing is a beautiful example of that, the depth of that limiting belief. I could be presented, right, with someone who, what makes them any different than myself. And this is, again, what our brains do. And we seek to exclude ourselves, to make ourselves that limitation. And for me, it really came um, from all of these different beliefs around health and what impacts health and um, how much control we have over health. And in my family, we didn't feel like we had much control over health. 
We thought that our wellness was impacted by our genetics completely out of our hands and that we were ultimately just a ticking time bomb until the illness took us over. Um, and I had to do a lot of unlearning um, to empower myself to be able to live into a, a truth or a belief that's different. And I'm sharing this as well because I want to acknowledge that a lot of us sit and wait to believe differently yes. um, before we begin to action differently. And I think what's really important um, for maybe some listeners to hear is that that's not the sequence of events. <laughs> um, you know, we typically need to start acting differently. Um, and then very counterintuitively, we have to tolerate the discomfort now of doing these new different things that are supposedly going to make us feel better. Yet initially, they typically make us feel different, unfamiliar, maybe even more uncomfortable. Um, and then ultimately keep actioning before then we begin to shift our belief. That will happen over time, um, but it's definitely not going to be the, oh, you know what, I just I, I believe differently now and I have hope for myself and off I go. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a really great distinction because so often it seems like many people, they sit around waiting for someone to give them permission to start taking those actions, you know, and as, and that's a part of conditioning in itself, as opposed to just beginning doing the work and the self-exploration you know, and then working through those changes like you were talking about. We think, and another thing I think we wait for is not only permission, um, I think a lot of us have a deep rooted belief, and this isn't to say that we don't need support on our journey, um, but I think a lot of us outsource our inner knowing to experts, to our friend who, you know, had this nutritional program work so great for them. So of course it's going to work so great for me. Um, you know, I think we have a culture who, because we don't have that security in that connection with our intuition, with that inner knowing that you brought up earlier, um, I do think a lot of us begin to have a habit, you know, in childhood that we then by the time we're adults, we don't trust ourselves. You know, we do look to the world around us. And again, this isn't a conversation. I do believe support. Um, I do believe professionals can be incredibly helpful. Um, but I believe that it's what's important is that it's a collaborative relationship where the human who's having the symptoms, the human who's now responsibility it's going to be to wake up every day and begin to make these new choices, um, that is a human that we do need to consider and validate in those rooms. And something that would come up so often for me when I was doing individual work was a question around, we can, and I would notice, we could have an incredibly impactful session, me and clients, you know, with a great game of action and, you know, checking a lot of boxes and feeling really positive about all of these new plans and habits we're going to break and new tools we're going to implement. And that's one hour out of however many hours there are in a week of time. And then all of the other hours that human would go out and live in their relationships, in their patterns. And more often than not, instead of getting a report the following week, you know, of, oh, yes, I was able to keep all of these new promises to myself and, you know, create, break all of these habits that aren't working for me and create all of these new action plans. The report I would actually get is I actually did more of the same. Um, my audit, I, I just kept, I, I even forgot what you said, Dr. Nicole, or I remembered what you said too late. Um, so again, I really started to consider, you know, how powerful this autopilot is and, how when we talk about change and transformation, what we're really talking about is not just one new choice. I mean, I wish I would be the first person to say, I wish it was a, a light switch where I could just say, oh, I have this information and now I'm just going to create a new habit and off I go. 
It's about doing that so consistently every day. So being a collaborator in the process, really learning how to trust that inner knowing, doing so, of course, with support, but learning how to show up for ourselves in those daily moments, which is where those new, where the old habits get broken and where the new habits get created. Yeah, that's really, really smart. I mean, that's one of the things that I have heard about people who are trying to meditate all the time is they meditate for 20 minutes or something in the morning, and then they go about their day just as, as normally mm-hmm. would. And then they look at, they compartmentalize the meditation as a time where they blow off the stress and the anxiety and the frustration that rises during the time when they're not meditating. And they go, okay, so this will be the time where I get really frustrated and I, you know, <laughs> whatever, and I run on, react to everything instead of respond. And now I'll go here and detox for 20 minutes and now just go right back to it instead where it's like, no, no, and then, like the meditation is just remembering, but then using that and taking that into those actions where you're actually getting frustrated and, and becoming reactive is the real Mm-hmm. work and where the real you know fruit kind of blooms. Now, why do you think that that's just seemingly a tendency of people to compartmentalize a approach to some type of self-betterment and then not remembering to bring that into their life, but still feeling somehow that they are working on it? I saw a very, um, I'm very, I love that you kind of saw that pattern in people. And I very much saw that myself, Corey, and I would always ask, well, what happens, right? after the meditation cushion, because um, to speak to your point, that's that's where life happens. Um, and I think some of it is our, our neurology, uh, meaning that autopilot, all of those habits, you know, are there. So the moment we're not conscious, um, that's what is taking over. It's going to literally continue us going about our day the way we need to without thought. Um, and most of us, the reality is, is that even if we do have a consistent meditation practice where we're practicing that act of being conscious to ourselves in that 20 minutes, then most of us typically shift right back into that autopilot. So when they say, I don't remember, right, or I, I have forgot this tool, you know, or it's not helpful now, I can't find a pause or a moment of presence. I'm just, you know, screaming and yelling and reacting. The reality in terms of the neurology of their brain is that they can't remember because chances are what is happening in that moment of emotional activation is connected to their body's nervous system stress response. And when that happens, when our, again, I'm really going to simplify all this, when our emotional brain is lit up and our body thinks it's tending to a perceived threat at hand, we lose, we actually lose access to the part of our brain that we activate in meditation that, you know, is able to be conscious and is able to think logically and is able to hold delay gratification and hold plans for the future that we want to be different than that old habit, knowing the ha- what that old habit brings us. All of that is actually neurologically offline. Um, so I'm sharing that aspect as I often do. Um, I like to explain the physiology or my understanding of the physiology or the neurology or the neurobiology um, underneath all of this because it's not a limitation or a shortcoming. It's nothing inherently wrong with you. You're not doomed to never be able to be conscious or meditate. <laughs> your actually brain is working um, exactly as your brain knows what to do. Um, logic, the future is of no priority when our survival is possibly being threatened. And again, this might sound really severe and, you know, even maybe crazy sounding for some of you listeners who are, you know, maybe living in a safe environment. What do you mean there's nothing actively threatening? 
Um, but again, all of this and even the perception, back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this, this idea of meaning making, all of that is so colored by those first early experiences. So we might be activating and living, even stuck in an overactive stress response where we don't have access or at least a large majority of our day, we don't have access to the part of our brain that we're activating in meditation. I also think another um, kind of human phenomenon, and again, sharing this from my own personal experience and definitely a experience lived in my family, we like, especially when we're uncomfortable, especially when there's something that's dysfunctional or not serving us in our life, we want immediate gratification. We want to feel better now. And the quickest way is to check my box of that 20-minute meditation to say, well, I've done, did this now, and I should be well on my way to you know, creating change, to relieving my discomfort. And the reality, again, another counterintuitive reality of healing um, is that, A, it's a consistent act. Um, as much as I would like to comp compartmentalize and think that once I've checked my to-do list of like, say for me, the morning routine that I try to do as consistently as possible, I would, I would do myself a disservice if I then felt I was that infamous word done with healing mm -hmm. for the day. Um, and again, I think we have human, that human tendency, which is to compartmentalize. We love to, especially us overachievers out there, I love to say I've completed something. It gives me this idea that I'm moving closer, right, to feeling better. And again, like, this is where the counterintuitive part weaves in. The reality of healing is oftentimes we don't feel better. We feel and we are awakened to and become conscious of incredible discomfort that many of us have very adaptively distracted ourselves from for so long. So one of the first things that I, you typically will experience and hear from people is, well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought I was supposed to be feeling better, right? Being conscious, really beginning to view this internal world that you're talking about and learning my emotions and trying to regulate, right? Wow, that doesn't actually feel good. That actually quite often feels really uncomfortable. So if you're already feeling that discomfort and now you're being met with the reality of needing to walk through more discomfort. Um, again, I think that compels a lot of us to just check the box, be done with it, and keep on going on that autopilot because it feels more comfortable. Yeah, that's a great analogy. But And it's funny, when you exploded outlook like that, it's like if you sat down to do breath work for 10 minutes and then you were done, you're, okay, cool, I'm done breathing for the day. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, right. no, it doesn't work that way. Check. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a bit, perhaps a bit of a granular question, but whenever you, you clearly have a, a deep understanding of conditioning and minding and growth and things of that nature, how do you return to original mind in some way to speak to someone who has no awareness of that because you know the curse of knowledge is real you know whenever you are so familiar with all this stuff you just one naturally assumes that another person understands it because it's so apparent to you how do you go about anchoring yourself in a place where you remember to speak to someone where they can understand it and where you're not you know uh, leaving out any useful information. I appreciate this question a lot, Corey. And it's a multi-step um, process in a lot of ways. And the first step is I get really clear on what is my intention? Why do I feel compelled like I want to? What is my purpose of explaining? And the reason why I'm being intentional about this first step is I've come to to see, to hear, and to experience in myself 
especially as we come upon new knowledge, especially as we begin to apply this wisdom and create incredible transformation and change in our life, what is the first thing most of us want to do? Share it. Change. Tell our friends, our loved ones, our partners of this new great information that they can now use to change the problem area (laughs) that we would like them to change or to do different. Um, So again, it might not have been the first answer that listeners were expecting, but I first get clear on why am I speaking this? Because if my intention is to change this other person, then I have to get really honest with myself and grapple with the reality that I think most of us humans really struggle to grapple with, which is that we can't change anyone outside of ourselves. We can hope for someone to change. We can give them tools and support and love them through their process, but we can't, like I was describing earlier, be them and show up every day and do the work of changing in this very granular, or consistent way that needs to happen with, with changing. So first and foremost, if once I've gotten clear that my intention is to share my knowledge, regardless of what they may or may not do with it. So releasing the expectation that they hear what I'm saying and they agree that it's a great, important thing to do and go do it next for the foreseeable future and change then I can get clear that, okay, so now I'm making the communication without expectation so that they can, I can be very objective about it. Um, Again, I might still in my heart wish them to do something with it, but I can hold space for the possibility that they, A, might not want to hear it. (laughs) B, they might want to argue what they hear, um, you know, and any kind of response in between that. So then once I've gotten clear that I'm speaking, then I can, like you beautifully said, see and kind of assess from what I know of this person. And obviously the closer we know someone, the more of somewhat of an awareness we might have of where their understanding is for certain concepts. And then it is really important. And you even kind of wove this into your asking of the question. When we're communicating with someone, most of us are communicating with an old past self of us. So we're using language that, you know, we understand And very few of us are actually communicating to the listener, which means, like you were saying, right, understanding what their level of comprehension is, what is, you know, their, maybe even having a very international community of self-healers that, you know, I share this information with daily. Um, One of the first things was really becoming aware for me of English isn't everyone's, you know, first (laughs) language. And some of these words are really big and conceptual. And I can just share, I'm a reader. I love reading books. I can't tell you how many books I've read where, Words are, I mean, so big and so not understandable and so not translatable. So saying all that to say, then you could really tailor the message um, using language, you know, using examples, um, using things that could hit their level of comprehension. And then again, on the other side of it, really holding space for whatever their reaction may or may not be and what whatever they will do or won't do with that information. Oh, I love that. I love that's a really great answer. And isn't anti-disestablishment and terrorism, isn't that the longest word in English? Jeez, I, <laughs> I would have to say yes. Um, so the next section that you you move on to is one that I find really interesting and very important because I had a personal um success, I suppose, with becoming conscious of this part of human existence, and that is returning to your body. Um, just as a quick little pre-roll, I, whenever, you know, about 10 years ago, got into the state that I, I refer to as existential paralysis, where mm-hmm. I was so in the mind and focusing so much on expanding 
my awareness and the detail of my just rather kind of philosophical understanding of self that it became very paralyzing. And the way I got out of that was by grounding into the body. And you talk about living in a conditioned body. I'm curious what you mean by that. Yeah, really, really great question. Thank you. And um, very similar to your journey, um, coming to the awareness of how much I was living um, in my mind for me, really in a state of disconnection or disassociation, I was shut down actually to mm-hmm. all of the signals, whether it was my body's nutritional needs or needs for rest um, or movement or my emotions. I was really disconnected um, from those happening in my body. And what I mean when I say, you know, living in a conditioned body, when I reconnected or the reason I should say I was disconnected, I came to find out um was not that again, that wasn't kind of who I was. I wasn't someone who didn't have a connection to my body. We're all born connected to our bodies. Um, for me, that state of disconnection began in childhood where I had a lot of big, overwhelming feelings about, you know, the medical crisis and events that were happening in my, in my childhood home around, around the daily stress of, of living life in a city with parents who were in their own um, nervous system state of activation in a survival mode, feeling like everything was stressful and having very little ability to tolerate stress. And the reason why I'm talking about the nervous system now here um, is if we don't have a safe and attuned and emotionally attentive caregiver, so really, you know, kind of common example in childhood, when we're upset, we we cry out in distress. Um, and hypothetically, you know, if we have a, a physically present caregiver, which not of all, all of us have had the privilege of growing up in a home with one of those, um, but assuming we have someone who's physically present, then when they hear the cry out in distress, right, the goal would be that this other human who approaches this developmentally dependent infant Um, Because the reality of humans is we can't survive on our own. Um, We are not a species that once the mom has us, that we can sustain or figure out our way to sustaining life. We're completely dependent. So we need that caregiver who's going to come to us in response of our distress to literally physically keep us alive, to make sure we're fed, to make sure we're resting, to make sure we're going to the bathroom, et cetera. Um, And then ultimately, when we have that person who comes consistently enough over time, what happens is gradually then we begin to take over. We learn the way our body functions. We learn, you know, what signals our body sends when it's hungry. We learn what signals it sends when it's full. We learn when it's tired, right? We learn and gradually we begin to then take that over ourselves. The reality most of us live is we didn't either A, have a present caregiver, or if, if we had one present, like in my family, I always had my mom physically present, Um, That was the role she embodied in the home was to stay at home and raise myself and my two older siblings. Yet emotionally, she was completely disconnected because she herself, from past experiences in her own childhood, did what I learned to do. When she didn't have someone as I didn't have my mom to show up and help me regulate when I was in distress, help me attune to what my body was feeling in terms of its emotions, really care for my body in an attentive way. I mean, she put food on the table and burped me and did all of the things. Um, but ultimately, without that emotional attention, that ability to help calm me when I was upset, what happened was I became overwhelmed with my, the feelings in my body. And I did the safest thing possible. I began to live life in that state of disconnection. I call it my spaceship. 
um, because it very much felt like I was just hovering and I was going through the motions externally. You might not have necessarily been able to tell um, how disconnected I was. But what I came to find, and again, this is an example of a conditioned body, is all of the ways that our body is being cared for, that now as adults, right, we've taken over. Even the the state of nervous system activation, is my body feeling safe and am I feeling at peace? Am I feeling at ease? Or am I feeling stressed? All of those habits and patterns were created in that earliest relationship and were impacted then by that caregiver. And so we will repeat, right, what was modeled to us. So if we had a caregiver who was disconnected from their body, we'll be disconnected from our body. If we didn't have someone to help us support us through emotionally overwhelming emotions, we will likely disconnect and separate from them. And we then won't shift that. We'll continue to live in that conditioning of our body. And again, it'll become our autopilot. It'll be just how we take care of our body or we don't. Um, how much rest we give ourselves or we don't, how we tend to our emotions or are able to tolerate stress or we don't. Um, and the gift of all of this is, even if we've lived very disconnected as I did up until my 30s when I came to be aware of, wow, how disconnected I am um, and how dissociated I was and then began that journey of reconnection, we can begin that journey at any time and we can learn to tune into the wisdom that our body has been holding for us all along and can begin to, and when we begin to really change those foundational daily habits of not only connecting with our body, of caring for the needs that maybe weren't getting fully met or weren't getting met to the way our human system needs them to be met, then we begin to see really incredible transformation. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. And same, same time frame for me as well. Mm. It was as I was turning 30, I was like, okay, I have to do something about this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when it, when it all began. Now you, you touched on a distinction that I think is so, so important that I, I really never hear anyone talk about, unfortunately. Um, and that is that in one of those family structures, like you were just describing that people so often mistake this, that a parent can provide, but still be a really unhealthy parent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so many times people mistake the, like you said, your mom was putting meals on the table. She was, you know, tucking you in at night or whatever. They, people think, oh, well, it couldn't have been that bad mm -hmm. because I was being provided for. Whenever really at the same time, you could be dealing with a, you know, someone with NPD or something that's totally twisting your emotions and your, your intellect and everything inside out. And you don't you know, to give yourself the room to acknowledge that, hold on a second, you know, just because that I wasn't starving and I had a roof over my head doesn't mean that things were great. And that's such an important thing. And yeah, I just don't hear people speak on it very often. I appreciate um, you acknowledging that, Corey, and I'll be the first to say I was that person who diminished, who looked back on my childhood and never in a million years would have spoken that anything was less than happy and great and supportive. I mean, that mom who put dinner on my table literally every single night at 5.30 p.m. was at all of my softball games. I played sports my whole life, right? She was very, as was my dad, they were very physically there and present. So for a very long time, I never would have. And going into a clinical psychology program in my 20s, beginning to learn about, quote unquote, big T trauma, um, it was in the 90s now where the studies started to circulate and we finally had scientific evidence that 
traumatic events in childhood, whether it be physical abuse or neglect, um, you know, incarceration, substance abuse of a parent, right? We finally had documented evidence, documented evidence that these things, the impact impact us well into adulthood. And, you know, the more, the more events that you have of these adverse childhood experiences, the more likely you are not only to have psychological or emotional issues into adulthood, but to have physical ones. So I'm reading this, this study um, in my 20s, by this point, being well aware that I don't remember much about my childhood. This was something I noticed about myself in my teen years, where a lot of my friends would be sharing childhood memories, this and that. And it actually became a running joke for a bit of how Nicole has no memories um, because I didn't. I didn't have like that childhood movie screen um, of what happened. So when I met this study and I, you know, started to read about this kind of big T trauma. Um, and I started to read about, you know, how some people block out memories. I did, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, I spent a little bit of time being like, oh, geez, Nicole, like did something happen to you? Because not only did I not have memories from my childhood, I saw in myself um, very early on in my clinical career, I got very interested in working um, in a population of people working through active addiction or substance use. Um, and I was also, you know, in my program on inpatient units, working with people with, you know, schizophrenia diagnoses and, and all of the more kind of quote unquote extreme um, diagnoses that one could have. And in them and in their patterns, in their relationship histories, I saw so much of the same, the same struggles, um, the same coping mechanisms that they were attempting to use that I saw in myself. So now I'm sitting there wondering after I did come to the conclusion that there wasn't any active abuse that happened to me, I wondered, well, what could be, whatever could be wrong with me mm -hmm. then, right? That I'm seeing all of this patterning that's very similar to people who actually have something that happened to them. And I don't have these memories. And it wasn't until many years after that then um, that I began to realize the impact of these other versions of traumatic environments and really began. And you'll, you'll see me, I wrote in how to do the work um, about my, my, desired need or belief in a need for a much more expanded definition where we really do understand that, you know, and, and this shift I believe has happened in even the definition of trauma where for a very long time we applied the definition or even the word trauma to an event. And if it crossed a certain threshold, like I was sharing earlier with the um, sexual abuse, neglect, things like that, right. Then we could put it in that bucket of, of trauma. Now we know that trauma as a word doesn't actually get applied to the event itself. What trauma is, is the impact of the event on the mind-body system of an unsupported individual living through an overwhelmingly stressful event. And then the more consistent that that then happens, this is for all the parents out there who, this isn't about a one-off, mm -hmm. having a bad day at work, coming home and right yelling or erupting on your child. This is the more consistently that emotional unpredictability is there, that emotional validity, or like me, that emotional absence, living in a home with a parent or a caregiver who's physically there and emotionally checked out on their own spaceship. Because the impact then of daily stressful events, the things that just typically happen in day-to-day -day life, in my own childhood world, development, developing with my peers and in my family environment, registers in my mind-body as overwhelming because I don't have that supportive human to help my nervous system regulate as it needed to. So the impact left on me was the same um, as the impact left on those that suffered that more traditional applied definition of trauma. And what I sadly see and even get 
kickback sometimes when I talk about these other versions of trauma, I will see, and sometimes it really even saddens me to see some in my field um, speaking out as if there is something inherently problematic with expanding this definition of trauma to include those of us who didn't, you know, have those those big adverse events, who did suffer the emotional neglect version of these traumatizing homes or the other versions of trauma. I see a lot of people, you know, yelling out of, of concern um, of doing this with this idea that there is only one version of trauma. And again, I think it really does boil down to the impact. And so many of us are impacted in ways that outwardly we do go into that shaming mode. We shouldn't feel like this. Our childhood was great. We had all of our needs met. And in reality, and, and why I was that person, it's really uncomfortable to, to admit to yourself about these humans that you might even still be in active relationships with, and I'm sure on some level deeply love and care for, right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to admit the impact that they have had on you. It was, it's very difficult for me, even as I continue to speak honestly um, about the dynamics in my family, knowing that my dad still listens, my, my sister listens, um, my mom, when she was alive, listened, you know, and, and knowing how difficult it must be um, for them to hear some of these stories and whether or not they might agree with them or not, or my version, again, going full circle of events right. of what happened. Um, for me, it's so important to speak the truth because outside of that smaller camp of people who take issue with it is a huge global community of people like you're acknowledging who are saying, Nicole, thank you. I, you know, I am that person. For so long, I wondered what was wrong with me. I was, I'm struggling so much and I've checked all of these, you know, traditional boxes of success and yet I'm stuck in whatever cycle of dysfunction I'm stuck in. Um, and that's the majority that I'm going to continue to show up and share my story for. Yeah, that's such a great explanation and, and description of that. I'm curious, and we of course don't have to talk about it if you don't like to, but um, how does, how do your family respond to you whenever they hear you talk about something, uh, uh, a story that involves them? It's been, um, I mean, it's been predominantly, overwhelmingly supportive from the beginning. Um, From the beginning when I created the account, which I actually did when I was on a period of no contact with them. Um, So then when we reconnected, they were you know, kind of more fully visible and we are in more active conversation then around it. Um, so there was, you know, direct family communication, actually in the therapist office where we were doing some family um, reconnection sessions where we spoke very directly about it. Um, one of, I guess, the main question, it's not even a concern that I would hear mostly from my dad, um, understanding that he was likely being a bit of a mouthpiece for my mom who was becoming, I'm sure, somewhat upset, though she didn't share much of that with me. Again, this is all illustrative of our relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, though, my dad's number one voiced question mainly is, well, why do you have to talk about us? (laughs) And I said, well, dad, you're you're kind of the only family I I have. And, And I know, and I've done kind of the spiel I just shared with everyone on here of, you know, why I think it's important for me to share and, you know, how my journey not only is important for me to share, because some an underlying theme in my family around this idea. It's so beautiful. How this is all coming connected around subjectivity and perception. And like you were saying, you know, I saw us perceiving, I saw me and other people perceiving things differently. And I kind of intuitively like got that, okay, maybe we're just, we view things differently. And I was sharing, I didn't have that experience. 
growing up with siblings who my sister is 15 years older than me and my Mm. brother is 18 years. I was not a planned um, pregnancy in the home gave me the opportunity of hearing a completely different life story or a family experience from them than I lived. And when they were, when they were born, my mom was in her early twenties when she had them. They're three years apart. She was very active. Um, her chronic pain wasn't yet a big consistent part of her life. When she found out she was pregnant with me, she was 42 years old. She had just, my sister who was 15 was just coming out of all of those developmental years of really severe health crises of her own. Um, and now she finds out Right, that she's pregnant with me. She's 42. So as I'm, you know, developing into my toddlerhood, she's, you know, aging and her chronic pain becomes a predominant issue. And the mom I grew up with, while she was at my softball games and cooking dinner, she also spent a lot of time laying. She didn't play with me. She didn't take, she wasn't out dancing. Um, something that was very much a consistent part of my sister, my brother growing up was a connection with my dad's extended family and they would have something called the cousins club and they would have, you know, monthly events. And I'm told that there was these parties and my mom would always be there dancing life of the party style. And I'd hear these stories, Corey. And I'm like, and they'd be like, you know, mommy, why isn't mommy getting up? And they really struggled my brother and my sister, my whole life with accepting the shift in my mom, becoming this more chronically ill presentation, you know, becoming more sedentary, not being as active. And my whole life, I was deferring to them. And I, you know, and it took again in my twenties for me to pull back and be like, wait a minute, Nicole, you're hearing this version of your mom. And if you're really honest and truly think back, that's not the mom that you grew up with. You grew up with a mom that was much different, that showed up in a much different way. Um, And that was really where I began then little by little in my family to begin to speak and validate my story, things as they were for me. So gradually uh, my family's been, and I've always had the space. They've never, you know, demanded I don't, or I take a post down or I don't speak on anything. Um, They very much know that this is my my passion, my purpose, and and the journey I'm going to continue and are very supportive of it. But like I said, there it's the differencing of opinions that still exist sometimes. Um, they've loosened a bit. My sister's able to, I think, shift and really challenge her perceptions and update them a bit. Um, and then in moments where it's what I believe has happened or my experience is different from theirs, we've learned to just kind of allow it to be what it is. Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. What an interesting background. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess a good thing for us to wind down on is the the ending part of how to meet yourself. You talk about your authentic self. That's one of those words that Mm -hmm. is kind of memified. And so Mm -hmm. it's got a lot of different meanings that aren't very accurate or sometimes rather surface level. I'm really curious how you define the authentic self. I appreciate you, you asking that. And I I do agree. I think it's one of those elusive concepts um, that sometimes I think depending on the, the definition you're reading can, can cause a bit of confusion about even the journey of getting there and, that's why very intentionally, um, while the workbook is titled How to Meet Yourself, you know, assuming that most people picking it up will maybe have this idea of an authentic self and, and an awareness that maybe they're not living as that person or who they truly are and they want to embark on this journey. And I'm imagining at least that many of the people who pick up the workbook will 
want to dive right into the authentic self piece, right? We want to, well, where is it? How do I know? What are the, what are the, you know, things I need to look for? What are the markers? What are the cues, right? How do I get there? And very intentionally, um, because as far as I see it, um, it's not necessarily a destination in that way. There's not necessarily a roadmap where I have to check those boxes that we love to check, right? Like on my, my marker, my mark points on my journey. Um, it's in my opinion, at least a, a journey of, I've used this language throughout this, of peeling back, of peeling back first of grounding ourselves in that consciousness that we began to speak about of learning that I, I am the listener of my thoughts, right? I am, I am the thinker. I'm not the thoughts my, my themselves. Um, once I create, you know, that, that separation from, from my conditioning, then I can now begin to bear witness. Um, and that's what the rest of the journey of the workbook is of bearing witness, the impact of my conditioning, right? Of those choice points of those autopilot choices I make and of those choices that I want to begin to make. And as I begin to peel back the conditioning and reconnect with my body and, you know, create that safety that I maybe never have had in my body, as all of that is happening and the more consistently I'm able to stay connected to my body, which means meeting its needs on a near daily basis so that it can feel safe so that I don't have to check out and live in my head or on my spaceship or, you know, distracting myself or abusing substances. I can be connected to my body. Then I can locate this elusive authentic self because in my opinion, it's, it's not a destination we get to. It's a reconnection with our, our organ, if you will, of direction, which is our heart. Um, I believe that the most, this intuition, this guidance that, you know, most of us do locate within this authentic self, um, in my opinion, it comes from our heart space, um, our heart and our brain. We now know we used to give all of the credit to this very powerful brain we have in our, in our heads. And it's not to, to diminish the power of our brain because it's incredible, but it's also to highlight the incredible power of other organs and, and how to meet, how to do your, the work. I talk about the gut in particular and how important that is to even communicating with the brain. Um, and now I think it's also important to expand the conversation to include our heart, um, our heart and its electromagnetic field and how it extends, you know, even at a greater distance and the electromagnetic field of our brain, sensing the environment around us. And as we learn to reconnect with our body and tune into our heart, that is where we hear those pings of intuition. Um, they're not the thoughts in our head. They're not the verbal instructions. I think that most of us are looking for them to be. Um, there are those inner knowings, those feelings, those you know, um, light bulb moments, those soft, gentle murmurings. And for a lot of you listening, maybe this is all just sounds like esoteric concepts right now. But as you become more connected to your body, you can feel in your heart. You can feel when it constricts when you're thinking about something you don't want to do or you're feeling feeling scared of doing. And you can feel when it relaxes and feels at ease and expansive when you're with your pet or another loved one or feeling you know cozy and safe in your bed in a given moment. And maybe if you don't feel those things yet, it's because again, you're so disconnected. Your conditioning is keeping you separate. And likely as part of that conditioning, your nervous system is so dysregulated that you don't have that safety to even connect with your heart. And that's kind of what you were describing earlier when you said it becomes us so much that we confuse it with our intuition. Um, so many of us are 
are feeling our bodies, but we're not feeling our heart. We're feeling our nervous system. We're feeling our heart race and beat out of our chest and, you know, sweat pouring down us. And that's all a nervous system response that, that will direct us. <laughs> um, you know, it might not though direct us intuitively where that will direct us toward is the path of perceived least threat. And again, now we know that all of our perceptions might be faulty. They might be grounded in an unsafe environment that doesn't apply here. Now we need to even call that into question. But doing the work of consciousness, understanding the impact of that conditioning allows you then to see those moments of dysregulation so that when you actually calm your body, then you can reconnect with that authentic self, again, that lives and speaks for that big, beautiful heart of everyone out there listening. Um, and it's also the space where we can truly connect to others, um, which is what I believe is our purpose um, here in this grand journey of being human. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's been really great connecting with you and uh, congratulations on the new book and for all the, the work that you're doing, helping so many people. Uh, yeah, it's just been really great talking to you and thank you again. Thank you so much, Corey. This has really, really been a great conversation. It's been truly an honor and thank you all for you listening. <laughs>